KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Randy Weingarten, president of the AFT, spent Thanksgiving weekend in Israel. She'll report on meetings with shared society groups and peace movement leaders. She'll also discuss the role of the United States in moving toward not only peace, but also equality and justice for Palestinians. Also, who was Bayard Rustin before the 1963 March on Washington? Gary Young will comment on the remarkable life of a gay, black, pacifist, former communist, and subject of a new Netflix biopic called simply Rustin. Gary is the author of the book, The Speech, the story behind Dr. Martin Luther King's dream. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we start today with news of the class struggle in California, a regular feature of this broadcast. The LA hotel workers strike continues, led by Unite Here Local 11, starting on Wednesday this week and lasting through Sunday. Hundreds of room attendants, cooks, dishwashers, and community allies are occupying Century Boulevard. Of course, that's the entrance to LAX Airport. Uh, this is billed as a multi-day, 24-hour action. Uh, for our listeners in LA, supporters of the hotel workers are invited to visit the occupation of Century Boulevard. Uh, the union lists morning prayers, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., or a lot of can, prayers. <laughs> or, or they can walk the picket line during the day, or they're asked to bring hot drinks at night. The highlight of the occupation will be this Friday, that's December 8th, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Century Boulevard, a worker's posada. A posada, of course, is the Mexican pre-Christmas festival featuring a ritual reenactment of Mary and Joseph's search for lodging in Bethlehem. And this one will be led by the Immaculate Heart community. Immaculate Heart was founded by rebel nuns who left their convent in the 70s and today say they stand with the marginalized, resist injustice and work to protect the planet. Their best known member was Sister Carita, expelled in 1970 for her anti-war and civil rights activism. The Posada will start 4 p.m. Friday at the Sheraton Gateway on Century Boulevard, just east of Sepulveda, and march up Century Boulevard to the east. Uh, Immaculate Heart will be joined by Clue, Clergy and Laity United, and the Los Angeles Catholic Worker. Now, this sounds pretty great to me, and the Posada, led by Immaculate Heart, says something about how Local 11 organizes a strike. Oh, it does indeed. And I remember back in the 1990s, I forget if uh, Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice had been formed yet, but they already had uh, uh, had done a great job uh, mobilizing progressive clergy, a guy named Dick Gillette, who may have founded that, who, as I recall, was somewhere out in Glendale or Pasadena. Anyway, I uh, attended uh, a kind of talk-in at the restaurant at the, the Lux Hotel right by the 405 and Sunset Boulevard, where in the middle of a very high-end brunch, some clergymen and clergywomen got up and explained how the workers were exploited. So this is a long-standing tradition I can personally attest to since I was there covering that. And they continue to do a very good job of organizing community support, as well as obviously the support of their own members and other uh, labor union activists. And, and don't you think that Mary and Joseph would have chosen a union hotel in Bethlehem if they could have? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And worse comes to worse, a unionized manger, if that had been <laughs> all that was available. So the background here is... The hotel worker strike began June 30th. 15,000 hotel workers at 60 properties in Los Angeles and Orange County. Uh, they're seeking, of course, higher wages, also better pensions, ending staffing shortages that lead to mandatory overtime, and better health care. They're emphasizing family health care. There are five hotels that have settled. 
The first was the Weston Bonaventure downtown, which settled pretty much right away. Then the Biltmore downtown. Last month, Lowe's Hollywood and the Laguna Cliffs Marriott in Dana Point uh, settled. And then last week, Le Marigot in Santa Monica, which is a Marriott hotel right on the beach settled. There are 40 Southern California hotel owners and operators who are bargaining as a group, and they have thus far refused to settle. We're entering the sixth month now. What's your assessment of this situation? The fact that these other hotels have settled, you know, suggests to me that whatever the uh, group of 47 hotels that are holding out uh, are holding out for, uh, apparently other very mainstream hotels have found the terms uh, acceptable and are going, you know, going along with them. So owner greed is not surprising in and of itself. But given that, it's a little surprising that the other hotels haven't reached the same accord that the the five you mentioned have. Now, news of the Republicans. Wednesday night was another of the Republican debates among the primary candidates challenging Trump. But I saw a headline at prospect.org that read, the big business primary is over. What's that about? Uh, That's about... Republican uh, and not just Republican, uh, major corporate uh, and major bank interests who, uh, while not necessarily in Joe Biden's camp, really don't want a a rerun or perhaps even a worse version of a Trump presidency. And so uh, the Koch brothers, although at this juncture, the Koch brothers are down to one, so maybe (laughs) we should call it the Koch brother, uh, formally uh, endorsed uh, Nikki Haley last week and uh, said they would put their uh, considerable financial heft into, you know, their own campaign for her uh, in uh, in the primary states. And then later in the week, clearly America's most prominent banker, Jamie Dimon uh, at J.P. Morgan Chase, who is a Democrat, said, look, I'm talking even to my Democratic friends and we have to avoid uh, the prospect of a Trump presidency. So, I'm asking even them uh, to support Nikki Haley. And there was some a report just late yesterday that one died in the wool Democratic CEO, uh, uh, Reed Hoffman at, uh, at Netflix, had come in big time uh, for Nikki Haley as well. So they say that Nikki Haley is better than Trump. In what ways? Well, that is the world's lowest bar to clear. You know, uh, who, who isn't better than Trump? <laughs> Uh, you know, Nikki Haley is basically your conventional Republican. More news about Republicans. Kevin McCarthy, former Speaker of the House, which made him just a couple months ago the number three person in line to the presidency, if something were to happen to the president and the vice president. Kevin McCarthy is quitting Congress at the end of this year. He won't, and then he won't be running for reelection in 2024. What happened? Well, he lost the speakership. I, I don't know if he plans to go back to Bakersfield, which some might consider cruel and unusual punishment <laughs> forbidden by the Constitution. But uh, he uh, he really lost everything that he had been working for uh, 15 years to maintain. And no matter how ridiculous or how uh, you know self-abasing uh, his positions had to be to propitiate Donald Trump, he was clearly willing to do it. And when all of that failed, uh, he just decided to uh, chuck it in. Now, since he's leaving at the end of the year, and since uh, Mr. Santos was expelled last week, this cuts the Republican majority in the House from four to three to two, mm. which really is kind of uh, <laughs> kind of breathtaking. And I think he knew what he was doing uh, by doing this, you know, and by doing it before a Santos successor can be elected in a special election. And then, of course, there's a real chance a Democrat may win that seat. But by doing it now, he knows he's reducing the Republican majority. And it's kind of a screw you to the right wing, to the ultra right wingers who uh, uh, cost him his job and him ultra white, ultra right winger Mike Johnson, who is now uh, the Republican speaker. The other news this week is that Norman Lear died on Tuesday. He was 101. 
The Obit in Time magazine reported, quote, Lear was part of the cheekily named Malibu Mafia, which Time describes as a group of wealthy Jewish men who donated to progressive causes, including nuclear disarmament, a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict, and various democratic campaigns. wonder if you'd like to say something about Norman Lear and the Malibu Mafia. Well, the Malibu Mafia, at its core, consisted of Norman Lear, Stanley Scheinbaum, Max Pilevsky, uh, Harold Willens, uh, and sometimes a guy named Miles Rubin. And what was interesting about all of them was they went on to each pick, as the Time magazine obit suggests, a particular cause uh, that then they had the resources to make national. Norman Lear founded uh, a People for the American Way, which uh, was uh, working against, uh, before we even had a name for it, Christian nationalism and uh, right-wing authoritarianism going all the way back to around the coming to power in Washington of Ronald Reagan, back at least that far. Harold Willens was the founder and funder of the uh, nuclear freeze movement uh, in the early 1980s. Stanley Scheinbaum uh, led the first delegation of American Jews to meet with Yasser Arafat of the uh, Palestinian Liberation Organization, for which he uh, was, uh, you know, attacked by uh, right-wing Jews, but really sort of laid the groundwork for uh, American official support for a two-state solution for what Bill Clinton, uh, to whom Stanley was close, tried to pull off while he was president with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and, uh, and, and Arafat. They were all, I would say, exemplary American citizens. They were really an integral part of the political infrastructure of Los Angeles. Occasionally, they functioned in sort of city politics as well. Pilevsky was the chief fundraiser uh, for the first successful mayoral campaign of Tom Bradley in 1973. Uh, they were a real force and a force for, you know, progressive causes and ideas in American politics. And one last thing, Henry Kissinger died. He was 100 last week. Uh, he got the longest obit, I think, in the history of the New York Times. I, I, I want to point out that no, hardly anyone screwed up as many countries as Henry Kissinger, so that requires a long obituary. Okay. Well, I heard a rumor that you spent some time with Henry Kissinger a while ago. In 1989, my friend Kelly Candell, who's a very accomplished uh, documentary filmmaker, was making a documentary film on Olaf Palma, who was the uh, uh, great Swedish socialist prime minister who had vociferously opposed um, the American war in Vietnam, uh, which outraged uh, Kissinger and Nixon. So Kelly was making that film and I agreed to write the narration. And uh, he you know, interviewed a lot of people who were uh, former uh, friends or allies of, of, of Olaf Palma. And uh, I, I sort of on a lark, he wrote Kissinger and Kissinger to our amazement said, yeah, you can come interview me. And so on, in the autumn of 1989, uh, Kelly Candell and I went to Kissinger's office in Midtown Manhattan with a, a film crew and interviewed him about Palma. And uh, he was very dismissive of what he said was Palma's moralistic or even theological approach to foreign policy. Uh, that's not how foreign policy has ever been made, he said, Palma's career to the contrary notwithstanding. Although he did say, and I think, you know, he thought this, maybe this would make him slightly more palatable to the kind of liberals who would be writing histories. Uh, he did say that he enjoyed talking with Palma because he was so intelligent. But uh, it was kind of a chilling experience for, for Kelly and, and me, uh, just because of the sheer disdain. He not only showered on Palma's worldview, but since Palma was a very American Swede who had gone to Kenyon College in Ohio, hung out with the Ruther people, and as a college student hitchhiked around 30 uh, U.S. states, he said, you know, it was the, the American moralism had seeped into uh, Palma's bones while he was at Kenyon College. Uh, and he then, you know, had this sort of brief diatribe against American moralism. So it was it was pure Kissinger. And I thought that made it uh, a better film. 
uh, whatever purposes Kissinger thought this might have served for him, uh, I, I don't think we quite uh, we quite got there. But that was indeed fine. Harold Meyerson, he interviewed Henry Kissinger in 1989. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about Israeli politics and American politics. For that, we turn to Randy Weingarten. She's president of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, with more than 1.7 million members in more than 3,000 locals nationwide. We reached her today in Jacksonville, Florida. Randy Weingarten, welcome to the program. It is great to be with you, John, and great to be from lovely Jacksonville Airport, you know, doing this podcast. <laughs> what are you doing in Jacksonville? Well, look, I'm in schools all the time or in work sites all the time. And, you know, we have, you know, at this moment, this really crazy moment in this country where there's so much division and so much fear there's also so much potential for the union movement to rise because workers really want to be part of unions. But you have to show up and you have to be there with your members. Before you went to Jacksonville, you went to Israel. <laughs> <laughs> this was during Thanksgiving week. Uh, what kind of trip was that? Well, you know, as many people know, um, both my wife, who is a congregational rabbi at the largest LGBTQS um, shul in the world, and I um, have both together as well as separately spent years and years and years trying to lift up shared society in Israel and in the Palestinian territories. We both are still, I know it's a tough term to say, progressive Zionists, but we are very critical of um, the failures of not only the Netanyahu government, but of the fascists that are part of his government, the atrocities on the West Bank, but also understand the you know, the potential of what Israel was supposed to be from the 1948 declaration. And so, you know, and, and, and have spent a lot of time really fighting for a shared future and for two peoples. So in some ways, this was both a shiva call in light of what happened on October 7th and the atrocities um, by Hamas, which we believe is a terrorist organization, but at the same time, really focused on how there is a future and a shared future. Palestinians have rights and need to have their rights protected. And that includes ensuring that, that there are not the kind of deprivation that we're seeing in Gaza right now. Um, the, and so all of this is kind of rolled up into wanting to walk the walk with our friends and family and colleagues, like at the hand-in-hand -hand schools in Israel, the, the Arab Jewish schools in Israel, like with standing together, like with the parent circle, like with all of those who really have tried to create a shared future, one in which both Jews and Arabs can live with the opportunities they need with equality, with freedom, and with security. So instead of being with our, our, our own families for Thanksgiving, we were with our Israeli and our Palestinian families in, in Israel. The week that you were there, 
there was a ceasefire. There were hostage releases. Of course, this week, the ceasefire has ended. Israel is back to bombing and destroying now in southern Gaza, and the hostage releases have ended at least temporarily. I want to ask a, a little bit about the politics around the hostage releases, which were going on when you were there. Of course, this was good news for Israeli Jews, but still must have been traumatic and a vivid reminder of what happened on October 7th. And I wonder about the movement demanding bring them home, this movement is called. They've had a demonstration as big as 100,000 people in Tel Aviv. To what extent does the demand for hostage returns is that part of a criticism of Netanyahu, or is that kind of just laying the groundwork for more revenge? Netanyahu had no, it seemed from, you know, the first few days of this terrible war, and I am in complete anguish about the continued and renewed bombing. We have called for humanitarian clauses. We have you know, there is no long-term military solution. I, I understand Israel's right to defend itself and deal with what Hamas did in its terrible, brutal way, the rapes, the killings, all of that. But I am in anguish about the renewed bombing and about the death of Palestinian civilians and children. Let me just be clear about that. Netanyahu made a deal with the people who voted for him over the course of the last 15 or 20 years, which was in exchange for his style of governing, which I've never been a Netanyahu fan, he would keep people safe. He would manage the conflict, not make peace. All of that exploded on October 7th. But what you saw is that is a is a Netanyahu administration, his coalition, who didn't care about the hostages. And what happened was that civil society, frankly, the group of people, the groups of civilian activists and civil activists, including reservists in the army, who had been on the front lines of the every Saturday demonstrations that had happened for months and months and months, Sean and I were at one of those demonstrations in April, that they moved into immediately into acting as civil society because the government was doing nothing to help the people whose lives had just been completely demolished in the, in, in the um, Gaza envelope, many of whom, by the way, had been long-term peace activists like Vivian Silver, and so first they were helping move people, get them to places of safety, go in, you know, there were former generals that were in there helping their families escape. But then when it was understood how many hostages, who the hostages were and how many there were, this same group of, of families and activists started the fight to bring the hostages home. And so, I was at the demonstration in Tel Aviv with 100,000 people that Saturday. There is a push, a real push by Israeli society to bring hostages home. And that that had to be and is as important as any other goal of this war. And so the hostage families are irate. Irate is not even a, you know, it's worse than irate at Netanyahu for not waiting, for not bringing more hostages home, for not bringing all the women and children home, for not trying to get more out. But this is society acting and saying, we need to be of team humanity. We need to all focus on the basic humanity of people, including the hostages that are there. And, and, and frankly, the week that we were there, a few days were before the ceasefire and then the ceasefire, Every Israeli TV set was focused on those hours of the um, hostage transfer and the heartbreak. There's trauma all over. There's trauma in Israeli Arab society. There's trauma in Israeli Jewish society. There's trauma all over. But the entire, at least the society that we talked to, 
is all focused on bringing hostages home. Seems like a prerequisite to any long-term resolution uh, requires replacing Netanyahu, having a new yes. government. I wonder uh, what you think are the chances that a new government post-Netanyahu might even be worse than Netanyahu's present government. I can only hope that it would be better. Um, I, you know, we, we spent a lot of time with union colleagues who, frankly, in Israel are far more conservative than union colleagues in the United States. We spent a lot of time with people broadly through the, you know, ideological spectrum. And there's not a person we know who believes in this government. In fact, this Netanyahu government, um, I mean, it's really, it's fascinating because they do actually believe in, and we heard this from um, Arabs as well as Jews, because we spent a lot of time with people in the mixed cities and with our Arab friends as well. The only hope they have is for the West, including and most particularly Joe Biden, to help create a path forward. Um, they have more faith and confidence in Joe Biden um, than they do in anybody in the Israeli government right now. And, you know, even the unions there this week have uh, the head of history group has said that there should be new elections right now and Netanyahu should not run. So, you know, I think that there's a, a need for a reset. We all know why Netanyahu is serving. He's, he thinks this is the way to stay out of jail, the same way as Trump and other autocrats um, operate. Um, but there is so much that hangs in the balance um, in terms of a way forward. And ultimately for us, this is a matter of, there are two people who deserve equality, who deserve freedom, who deserve opportunity, who deserve peace and security. And we as Americans need to help do whatever we can to support what happens the day after, at the same time as we try to get the hostages out and try to push the Israeli government to absolutely minimize the humanitarian crisis and the killing of innocence in Gaza. What a world we live in, John. What a world. Yeah, yeah. What should Americans who care about peace between Israelis and Palestinians be doing right now? So look, I am a member of J Street. And so I believe in um, doing what J Street is doing right now, which is to push very hard for the hostilities to end the cessation of violence. The word ceasefire is fought, but I would actually say there needs to be a bilateral ceasefire, um, one in which Hamas is demilitarized, the killings are stopped, and that there is a, um, an Arab-led government in Gaza and in the Palestinian Authority. There needs to be the muscle of two states or two places for two peoples, knowing for well that security is going to be a very, very big issue. But it's clear that the process of managing the conflict did not work. It's clear that trying to create peace and ignore Palestinian issues does not work. There needs to be what Oslo started in terms of ensuring that that two peoples have rights and have basic humanity and basic dignity and a shared future. And so for Americans, regardless of where one is in terms of the spectrum, there's lots of people who have very, very different views than I do. People need to be able to express those views without violence, without incitement. There needs to be academic freedom but we also need to make sure that the spate and the increase in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia need to be staunch, need to be stopped. People deserve to live in peace in America and safely in America. So 
at the same time as I hope and pray and believe in, you know, the, the, the push that President Biden is making to say that there's an understanding that, that the Israelis have a right to fight this war against Hamas, but one has to minimize casualties of civilians and one has to make sure that there is as much focus on the day after in terms of peace and shared society and a shared future of um, Israeli Jews and of the Arab and Palestinian communities. Randy Weingarten, president of the <laughs> AFT, just back from Israel. Randy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Bayard Rustin, who organized the 1963 March on Washington, is the subject of a new biopic on Netflix called simply Rustin. For comment, we turn to Gary Young. He's a longtime Guardian reporter and columnist, now professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. He's also a writer for the New York Review, a member of the Nation Editorial Board, and a Type Media Fellow. And this year, he was awarded the Orwell Prize. He's written several books, including The Speech, the story behind Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. It's out now in an updated edition. We reached him today at home in London. Gary, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, if people know who Bayard Rustin is, they know he organized the March on Washington. But who was Bayard Rustin before August 28th, 1963? A very interesting character. He had been a communist. He was a member of the Young Communist League. He was gay. He had been a conscientious objector during the Second World War. He was a Quaker and was involved in pacifist activity. So not your average civil rights person at all, let alone civil rights leader. And he was an organizer, first and foremost. And he had also, 10 years before the March on Washington, been arrested for a lewd act involving two other men, a kind of... Um, a moment in his past that comes to haunt him in reality and in the film. The issue facing the filmmakers here is, given this extraordinary life, where do you start his story? Uh, this biopic uh, has a fascinating beginning, not in 1963, getting ready to organize the March on Washington. They start in 1960 with the preparations for a different demonstration, the Democratic National Convention was about to be held in Los Angeles. That's where Kennedy was set to be nominated as the candidate. That's the starting point of the documentary. What is the story there involving Rustin and how does it work in this movie? Well, Rustin wants King to, to march on the convention and to make the support of African-Americans for Kennedy contingent on Kennedy's support for civil for civil rights legislation. And King is reluctant to do so. He's very reluctant to do so. Rustin persuades him, and then King finds himself coming up against some of the other members of the sometimes called the Big Four, or the Big Six, Roy Wilkins of NAACP, James Farmer of CORE and others, uh, and Adam Clayton Powell, congressman from Harlem, these institutions within the African-American community who were saying, like, who do you think you are? And in that, we see a couple of things. We see Rustin's mischief-making and his need to constantly push the political establishment, the political establishment within Black America, but also so that they can push the, the broader political establishment to force them out of their comfort zones and into open conflict with power but we also we see 
his somewhat precarious relationship with King and other leaders, and therein, for me, lies something of uh, a criticism with the with the film. And we see the conservative nature with a small c of the civil rights leaders. If you follow that, what happens with the 1960 demonstration all the way through, you see them being deeply uncomfortable about Bayard Rustin's homosexuality and deeply wary of doing anything that may sort of muddy the waters. There is clear good and bad in the South. There is clear good and evil. But then when you get to national politics and Kennedy and the Democrat, then things get more murky and they don't want to rock the boat. And Rustin becomes the personification of that desire to rock the boat because, you know what, not enough of the African-Americans were in the boat to start with. I thought that was the best thing about the movie and the smartest thing about the way they did this, which is that the central drama that emerges from this 1960 argument is not a fight between the civil rights movement and the segregationists and the racists. Their opposition is taken for granted. The central drama is not between the civil rights movement and the Democrats. The lack of enthusiasm of the Democratic Party is taken for granted. They note almost in passing that Bobby Kennedy wants the March on Washington canceled. But that's really not what this is about. The central drama of the film is the argument within the civil rights movement between the activists and the and the establishment between let's call it the left and the center the problem of finding the best strategy for pushing kennedy and the liberals to take action and of course this is a problem of our, of our lives and our time too what kind of concessions and compromises are justified in the name of building a broader movement and winning some kind of victory that will be partial and incomplete, what kinds of concessions and compromises are, are too much? What should you not abandon because liberal allies demand that you do so? In fact, Rustin and his people give up a lot in the March on Washington planning. They want to surround Kennedy's White House. They want to have a picket line around the White House, abandoned because the, the liberal leaders say that's too much. They want direct lobbying of every member of Congress, canceled. They want tents on the mall, abandoned. And what they get in exchange for this is participation and support from a much broader, broader group of liberals, especially the labor movement in, in the United States, which really mattered in 1960, especially Walter Ruther and the United Auto Workers. They have a lot of people, they have a lot of money. They have a lot of political clout in the Democratic Party. So this, to me, is a very interesting way to make a movie about the March on Washington. Yeah, it does a good job of highlighting the conservatism within the movement, which relates to social issues. So there is some tension over the fact that no women get to speak at the march. They get to sing, but not to <laughs> I would describe it as slightly differently, and this is where I think that well, there's a few ways in which I think the the film falls down is is less a kind of tension between the the center and the left is between the base and the leadership that throughout particularly that year in sixty three you see the leadership of the civil rights movement not wanting to have a march, wanting to kind of keep close to the Kennedys, and they keep being outmaneuvered and outstripped by events in particularly in Birmingham that year which kind of changes everything and and so they are kind of pretty much bounced into the march by the force from below which you kind of get glimmers of here and there i mean my my feeling about the about the movie is that it would have been better as a kind of four part five part series we get to work with those bits of Rustin's character that we are now prepared to work with. So him being gay, which is no longer the quite the taboo it was, still an issue, still a challenge, but not the challenge that it was. But we don't get to see him as a communist. We don't get to see him as a conscientious objector. We don't get to see him as a Quaker. We don't get to see those ways in which, both culturally and politically, he is not aligned with the mainstream of the civil rights uh, leadership, church-led and so on. 
but that there is still a community, small but existing, of people who are either fellow travellers or members or former members of the Communist Party who are involved in the civil rights movement. We don't get to kind of engage with the forces that create Bayard Rustin. When we see him, he's formed. And that makes it more of a film about Rustin and the March on Washington than there's a film about film about Rustin, which means that there's scope for more films about Rustin. I mean, how many films have we had about King? How many films have we had about Kennedy, Bobby, John, all of them? We need more time with Rustin than we were given. Now, you wrote the book on the speech, King's speech. You know a lot about preparations for the march, the day of the march. How did this version of the story of August 28th compare with what uh, you learned? What, what did they miss? What did they correctly emphasize? They got it mostly right. And there were some details that they, you know, that they went for, which, which were good. The moment where he shows Eleanor Holmes, I think it is, the blank sheet. When Rustin comes onto the moor, the story that I know, so it's slightly different to the way it's told in the, in the film, but that's okay. He comes onto the mall and the press are like, where is everybody? How do you know that people are going to come? You said, you know, 200 or 1,000, and Rustin looks at his notebook and then turns to him and says, gentlemen, we are right on schedule, but his notebook is completely empty. <laughs> I mean, the, the audacity of this march, they do broach. But on the day, I felt that there were there was there was more drama actually. I mean, interestingly, for a show. so there is a whole load of horse trading that goes on about who's going to speak first and who's going to speak last, and and uh, the preening and cockstrutting and the kind of uh, jealousy around King and how much time he gets. And in the end, they say, "Fine, he can speak last, but he only gets eight minutes." And Rustin thinks, "Fine." because it's last, and what are you going to do? Kick him off the stage. <laughs> On the day of the march itself, you have John Lewis, future to become a congressman from Georgia, a great leader uh, in SNCC, who's the young firebrand, and who has a speech that talks about marching through the South as Sherman did. And um, the unions in particular kind of have connections about this speech and there is a kind of there is a intense negotiation takes place at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial kind of um taking out bits of his speech uh that would most cause offense and most of the people that I spoke to who were on the march talk about not they say John Lewis's was the best speech of the day in the mm -hmm. moment Kings has carried has 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 carried the history and in the end, it's resolved by A. Philip Randolph, who I think doesn't get, uh, he's the leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Carporters, uh, a union man, an African-American, who is really Rustin's ally in most of this stuff. And A. Philip Randolph says to John Lewis, young man, I've been waiting for this day all of my life. Will you please, please, like, you know, make, make this work. But I felt that, in order to foreground Rustin's relationship with King, which of course he did have a good relationship with King, they actually took away a lot of Rustin's relationship with A. Philip Randolph, which is central to it because Randolph is the person who pushes for the march. I'm so glad you brought up the censoring of John Lewis's speech because I, I looked that up. You can find online Lewis's original speech annotated with what was changed. He, he calls on the civil rights movement to march until the revolution is complete. Mm. And he was forced to change that to say, march until the revolution of 1776 is complete. Just yeah. two words, but it's a big change. Mm. Well, yes, it was um, so much of what happened that day was about enveloping th the demand for civil rights within American mythology. It's a dream as, as true as the American dream. Uh, as King says. But that's the other thing about that day, which is evoked, but not quite stressed. I don't mind this so much because I'm more interested in Rustin for this film than I am in 63. But the degree to which Washington, D.C. was militarized on that day, yeah. the amount of 
violence that they expected. You know, with aircraft carriers poised to kind of come in with all, I mean, they do talk about all policemen having their um, uh, their leave cancelled, but you don't get the sense of the military, the, the degree of militarization that was that was prepared for that day. They have one line where the chief of the Washington police, very uh, hostile to the whole thing, tells Rustin that there are 20,000 uh, active duty soldiers standing by. And yeah. Rustin has a great comeback to that. But Oh, and that they are closing all liquor stores in the District of Columbia starting at 6 a.m. And that the Congress congressmen have sent their female staff home for the day yes. for the day yes and in the end i think there are less than 10 arrests i think it was just two or three at least one of them was a white person i mean it was you know as peaceful a march as one might expect i mean in terms of organizing which is where the rustin's forte in his element here it was an incredible feat not least because it had never really been done before there's one other thing that i thought was missing the slogan of the march was March for Jobs and Freedom. Explain what that's about. Well, it was partly about the the inclusion of the union movement and the civil rights movement, that all of the ways in which people try still to complicate the relationships between race and class. Here we are in 1963 with a clear understanding that, you know, they're really going to struggle class-wise if one group of people can be massively underpaid and that African-Americans as a minority in America are not going to do it on their own. And so it is a mobilization of labor and minorities who understand their interests as being aligned. I think, though, there is something else taking place, which Rustin alludes to, not in the film, but later in his life, which is like, okay, we now have the right to eat in any restaurant we wish but we can't afford what's on the menu. What does it mean to have civil rights in the absence of economic rights, in the absence of economic equality? And so so that element of jobs and freedom is a connection between the civil and the economic, which is absolutely vital, still vital. And completely missing from the Netflix film. Yeah. I do. I did note one thing about the Netflix film. Its executive producers were Barack and Michelle Obama. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, and therein lies the story, right? I mean, who knows if it wasn't for them? And here we're talking about what is strategic and what is not possible and what is possible. Who knows if it wasn't for them, how long it would take to get a film like Rustin off the ground? I'm sure that their involvement shapes the politics of the entire project. There was one interesting kind of strange, strange shift, which is that at the end, we see the NAACP leader, Roy Wilkins, saying, we've been invited in to see Kennedy, as though the march, as though somehow that was part of the goal of the march. The truth is that they were invited in to see Kennedy before the march. The threat of the march got them in to see Kennedy and that Kennedy asked them not to have a march. You know, he said, we want legislation. We don't and we don't want Negroes on the streets. And a Philip Randolph says the Negroes are already on the streets, Mr. President. And I doubt if we called them that they would come back, which speaks to a real awareness of who's running the show here. But but I thought it was an interesting notion that like, hey, we've had our march. Now we're off to see the president. And it's like, well, actually, the march was the thing that forced the brokering that made the president see them in the, see them in the first place before the march ever took place. One personal note, my father took my 14 year old sister to the march. They were in St. Paul, Minnesota, and had some relatives who lived in suburban Washington who also came came to the march. Uh, and there's a picture of them holding up a sign that says, we march together, Catholics, Jews, Protestants, for dignity and brotherhood of all men under God, now, exclamation point. Oh, um, wow. Well, do you have a picture of that? 
my sister has still has that picture and put it up on her Facebook page on the 60th anniversary, which of course was, was right. uh, last August. Gary, any final thoughts about the movie and the man? I get a sense, both from having read about him, I read the John Domenio biography, and then other things that I read about the March for my book, uh, and seeing him in this, you get this sense of, in the best possible way, a man who doesn't know his place. To be gay, to be black, to be a former communist, to be a Quaker, to be a, a conscientious objector, there has to be some sense of fearlessness, which I'm sure would present as regal. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Young, he wrote the book, The Speech, The Story Behind Dr. Martin Luther King's Dream. Gary, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music